so my life is a positive story and it always made me sad to realize the less problem you are, the less attention you get. I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre, a podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the story of the people and politics of international aid. On the shelf beside my desk as I work, on this podcast sits a book entitled Atlas of Countries That Do Not Exist, a collection of maps and text describing some of the many regions in the world seeking to strike out as independent nations of their own. It's a long list. The membership of the unrecognized People's Organization, for example, encompasses more than 50 places, comprising more than 300 million people. I spent more than four years traveling in and out of such a place, Bougainville. And prior to that, I lived in a place, Timor-Leste, that 10 years previously did not exist on the map. And there are other places in our near abroad with independence ambitions, including New Caledonia and West Papua. The international aid setup struggles to know how to work in countries that do not exist. Sometimes resources are poured into these places, and sometimes you get the sense that they're ignored entirely. This podcast asks if such splendid isolation is necessarily such a bad thing. We travel in this episode to Somaliland, a country that does not formally exist. Somaliland is in the Horn of Africa. It is the northernmost segment of Somalia, and to all intents and purposes, it is operating as an independent nation of its own. All nations have their founding stories, and central to Somaliland's story is that it was founded on its own, without international support, without aid. I got to know about Somaliland when reviewing a extremely insightful academic book for the Development Policy Center's blog, which was called When There Was No Aid, written by Sarah Phillips, an academic at the University of Sydney. Sarah writes about the early days of Somaliland, about how the political settlement was made between its leaders, and also, intriguingly, in later chapters, about how the global aid caravan has now well and truly arrived, sometimes delivering projects to solve problems that either don't exist or are unlikely to be resolved using the two-day workshop approach, which appears to be so ubiquitous within international development. I was intrigued. And I set out to find out more by talking to Sarah and also Mohammed Ahmed, Sarah's research assistant and fixer, and Ayan Mahmoud, former representative of the unrecognized Republic of Somaliland to the United Kingdom. They were bracing, candid conversations with resonance far beyond the swathe of land in the Horn of Africa. Let's begin in the late 1980s with Ayan, who recalled the sepulchral feeling that cast a pall over what is now the Somaliland capital, Hargeisa. As a young adult, when I arrived in Somaliland, what I 
saw for myself and of course as someone who has Somali heritage you always knew the situation was not that good for your people but a country and people who are totally destroyed a capital city that looks like a, a ghost town Ergesi was empty city so the population of the capital was totally displaced or killed so people were just about trying to recover from that situation and try to make sense out of it and it was a painful but at the same time it also inspiring inspiring to see the capability of people and the aspiration and really struggle to win their life back these memories of violence these memories of what once was had real resonance for me coming as i do from northern ireland our political settlement is not perfect we harumph and complain about our politicians but many of us of a certain age have a real tangible memory of what it was like before the same is true of somaliland and this memory of what once was is a powerful animating factor ensuring that peace is kept today it's historically we faced an almost ethnic cleansing we dealt with a dictatorship for a very long time who uh, ultimately destroyed our country and killed many of our people and displaced the rest i think knowing that and having that in constant in our memory we know what we can do our government is well aware they can have a dictatorship tendency our communities know if we go that route and we don't have elections if we don't have solidarity things can go very badly and wrongly so maybe it's not a positive experience that we have learned from but it's out of that negative experience and what we went through that made made us one resilient but two also very mindful on issues that we need to be very careful about one of the things that worked for Somaliland also is we are a very traditional society and it's that culture of clan elders coming together talking negotiating trying to resolve problems always together so they make decisions and these are not decisions that came from elsewhere it's decisions that came from the community itself how they see the future and what next step should be i think that's the base of our stability is when there is a problem we always manage to sit down together when the freedom fighters won the war against Siad Barre the regime what they have tried to do is to bring people together all the communities of Somaliland together in in Borough in 1991 and and really to talk about how are we going to approach this how are we going to do this how are we going to live together what kind of processes are going to be used how can we achieve peace among our, our own communities and what was so remarkable about the Somaliland process was it was totally self-owned there was no international community the international community was facing Somalia at that time because then the fall of Siad Barre and you know the storms of refugees so that was where the world was mainly looking at 
while the world was looking at that, what Somaliland then have tried totally in silence is to bring their community together and really to talk about reconciliation and how can we live together regardless the different roles that we have played in what has happened. Why that meeting was so significant is if that meeting did not take place, we would have been in war. If Somali landers of the rebel groups would have take revenge on communities who are not on their side, the situation could have been very different. So one of the things that's interesting and you point out was that there was no international aid or was no international support going to Somaliland at this time. When you look back at that time, was that a help or a hindrance? It sounds like it was a blessing in disguise that there was no international aid. Definitely. I think when the process is owned locally, the problems can be resolved. But if the problems are not owned by the people and the solution cannot be owned by the community, what then happens is that you always wait for another person or another or international community to come in. And they may never come in. And if they come in, they may not understand your situation. So they will not be able to solve your problem because they don't understand your problem in the first place. Uh, they don't understand our priorities. They don't understand what kind of development we need. So most of the initiatives that the international community comes up with is adding to our problem because they come up with the wrong priority. Over time, international aid has made inroads into Somaliland, but this place is often thought of in the same breath as Somalia, and with it, the bingo card of bleak associations that come with that place. Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down, Famine, and for Mohammed, now living in the UK, his first challenge when he meets someone new is telling them that he's not from the place that they think he's from. When you say Somaliland, the first thing that pop up into your head is Somalia, where there's chaos, wars, civil wars, famine, and so on. But the thing that pops out the most within Somaliland, given it where it is in the region, is democracy. And it's the only country in Horn of Africa that genuinely has free and fair elections. Most of the countries in the Horn, whether it's Uganda or recently Sudan or Ethiopia or Djibouti, or they're all autocratic countries where its leaders been there for generations. The problem of Somaliland, we are too stable. You know, we are peaceful, democratic, progressive country who doesn't add up a problem to the region. So to get attention, it's almost you have to be a problematic kid. So if you are the most clever kid in the class, with no special needs, you don't get attention. But if you are a naughty child, you know, running around, not learning, then you get the, all the attention of the teachers and people around you. So that is the problem uh, that we have in Somaliland. So we don't make enough noise. So as long as you are not a trouble, so you are also not high on the agenda. 
because unfortunately that's how Islamic world now is defined and most of African continent those who make mess out of their situation they get the most attention either we discover oil big oil in Somaliland or there is a direct link with a US and Western interests which is gross human rights violations that need to be stopped One of my favorite factoids in Sarah's book is the contrast between the amount of money that was pumped into Somalia in the 1990s and the money put into Somaliland. The United States and the United Nations collectively spent about four billion US dollars in Somalia in failed attempts to try to stitch together a peace. In Somaliland, $100,000 of foreign money was spent. And even that figure is disputed and the cause of some consternation among Somalilanders because they see that money as a stamp of external assistance, a stain on their claim to emerging as a nation of their own. I was at a speaking function in Hargeisa in Somaliland and someone in the audience said at the end of my presentation, you know, you've written in footnote that we got $100,000. We never got anything. Where did you get this figure from? And a number of other people in the room sort of looked like, yeah, where's that? we didn't get 100000 And I think the fact that even that small amount of $100,000, that it is so controversial and that it is seen by some within Somaliland to sort of almost discount that narrative that we did all of this great work, we did all of this peace building, we did all of this developing without external partners. But even that small amount is seen potentially by some to undercut that, I think is really telling about just how Somaliland frames its national story in opposition to that of the rest of Somalia. And what it says is basically that we gained our independence and that we did this by ourselves. We negotiated our own peace process through the ability to generate funds locally and pour it back into the local community for the purpose of peace building and reconstruction. International attention was really focused in and around Mogadishu and the UN really wanted to reunite Somalia under its auspices with Mogadishu as its capital. And so huge amounts of money and political capital went in towards achieving that end. Whereas the peace conferences that were going on in Somaliland at around the same time, we're talking sort of the early to mid 1990s, attracted almost no attention at all, other than from some within the UN who did actually attempt to conduct some spoiler missions, upending some of the peace processes. In many ways, Somaliland was privileged to have been beyond the remit of international privilege. And this necessity and having no money on tap proved to be the mother of all inventions. Because they weren't formally recognised as a state and are still formally not recognised as a state, they weren't able to, as you say, access any sort of international loans. But it also meant that they weren't encumbered with international debt so they weren't struggling to pay back large amounts of money to the international community either. 
they also weren't able to legally access weapons. So it wasn't like the country was becoming awash with new weapons. There were still weapons floating around from previously and, and actually quite a lot, but there were no outsiders who were keen to open up a new market there. What this also meant was that there was far less external money to play for. There was nobody from outside of the country attempting to end the war or prolong it, which had a profoundly different effect on the trajectory of the conflict to what we tend to see elsewhere. Somaliland's peace doesn't look like anything that would be in a good governance handbook as to how you go about doing things. I mean, there's various monopolistic practices, there's different leadership maneuvers, kind of looking the other way at different times. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of nuts and bolts about how Somaliland leaders built their state? There was just a lack of resources. And and much of that goes to the fact that they couldn't just go to the World Bank or the IMF or to other donors and ask for financial assistance. So there was a really immediate incentive for the leaders at the time to find a way to access wealth. But I think they realised that if they were to just simply confiscate the wealth that existed within the country, that was going to be a big problem with them. They actually had to rely on the merchant community in order to be able to achieve their political goals. So what you see is this sort of growing understanding between the political leadership and the economic leaders in the country about the need for the economic leaders to support the political leaders in the peace process. And so what you have is the second president, President Egal, drawing up a series of contracts with some of the country's key merchants, basically giving them tax exemptions in exchange for loans. And Egal used these loans in order to buy off the militias, basically, to put it crudely, and to help to then integrate them into a nascent national army and nascent national police force. So he uses the money that he gains from the merchant community to help build the basic political infrastructure and the basic security infrastructure first, really, of the country. Somaliland's political settlement is twofold. First, like the rest of the community, political leaders emerged as a product of this kind of zero-up nation-building effort. But secondly, many, like a former president, Mohammed Haji Ibrahim Egal, were educated abroad and they represented a returning diaspora community with open minds and fresh ideas. And this worldly nature of the Somaliland elite traces back to something that's called a Sheikh school, a school set up by former British military officer who fought in Somaliland during the Second World War, was rescued by Somalilanders, and paid back the debt of gratitude that he had by setting up a school. Mohammed Haji Ibrahim Egal had the experience of being educated abroad. Most of the people that came out of uh, Sheikh Secondary School uh, went further to learn abroad, and whether it was here in Britain or in other Soviet Union countries, they came back with the ideology of different mentality where they had a vision. Mohammed Haji Ibrahim Egal had the vision of where Somalia would be in a democratic state where he, he introduced function of government, elections and so on. 
like here in England where you have the logs and the commons. He wanted that idea of having the gurti where you have elders and, and you have a parliament. But that wouldn't happen, I believe, if he hasn't gone to Sheikh. This school, the Sheikh school, is fascinating. And it was something that people kept talking about in interviews when I was asking about development. And they would say, oh, you know, such and such, he was a Sheikh schoolboy. And I should say it was only open to men. It was not open to girls. But people kept talking about it. And I had one person say, I'll never forget it. He'll say, I'm so glad you asked about this. Nobody asks about Sheikh school. We keep saying to donors, this is what we need. We don't need buildings, but we need more schools like Sheikh school. We need to be helping to train our elite. And in some ways, I feel a bit funny about making this argument about the importance of elite networks and particularly, you know, here, elite men's networks. But this was really important to how the country developed, such that in any of the cabinets of the country, there's usually about a third that went through this school. I think three out of four of the first presidents went there. Most of the vice presidents went there. This is a school that only took 50 kids a year for, I think it was less than 30 years. But I think what is really interesting about this is that when it came time for the nascent state infrastructure, nascent state bureaucracy to need people who were capable of working as technocrats, they didn't have to go outside. They didn't have to fly in because they couldn't technical assistance from elsewhere. They had at least something of that capacity there. And, you know, these people, as we see all over the world, they acted within their network. And so they sort of helped to build each other up and to form the technocratic backbone of the early Somaliland government. Sarah writes in the book about how I think you and her visit Sheikh School and you're trying to get entrance to Sheikh School and you have the official letter to get you in, but the security guards are not letting you in until someone can find someone that can find someone that can vouch for you guys and say, yes, let them in, that we trust them. In Somaliland, as in many African countries and many other countries in the world, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So you need to ask a friend and a friend knows another friend and another friend knows another friend that knows a minister. <laughs> so it's just a long way and it takes days, I guess. But at the end of the day, if they trust that person that's connecting you, they will trust you. So all we had to do is call, I think it was the minister's secretary and... Um, he got connected into the uh, police command where they just gave the police officer a ring and he let us in. I love this concept that you have about security as the kind of connections to the people around you. And that made me think of the work that I've been doing in Bougainville, where security is provided not by necessarily by men or women wearing uniforms, but by a kind of assemblage of different actors, some of whom are ex-combatants, some of whom have clan leadership positions, all of whom are connected to each other through dark matter. We can't actually see the, the relational threads that there are between them, but that is what it is that actually keeps Bougainville a stable place, even though it's often sort of thought of as not being a stable place. I mean, it's a place where there is 
security, but it's not security brought about by official institutions. One of the great little anecdotes that you say in the book is you talk about how if you want to join the Somaliland police, you've got to bring your own gun because the arms embargo on Somalia, you can't buy a gun or the Somaliland police can't buy guns. You've got to bring your own. Given that that's how security is maintained in a place like Hargeza, what explains the focus within Somaliland of wanting to build up a sort of police service or a police force or an army? Because it's not actually the people in uniforms that are providing the security most of the time. I think this also comes down to the ways in which Somaliland is extremely enthusiastic about becoming recognised internationally as an independent sovereign state. And part of that is demonstrating that they have the capacities that are associated with Weberian sovereign independent states, one of which is a police force. But also, I mean, they, the police do perform some security functions, but they do it in collaboration with the community. Somaliland is a place of connections and relationships. It's an oral culture which prioritises process rather than time-bound output. And Sarah and Mohammed learned this firsthand through their research when they went to the parliament. The conversations didn't follow necessarily the clear research methodology and plan and schedule that they had in their mind's eye when they went in. Somaliland people and Somalis in general are very oral people. We tend to talk a lot and that talk always drifts off to off topic. So we went in thought to have a few chats with a few elders and members of the Gurti, the upper house of the Somaliland uh, parliament. It's late noontime, just after the session they've had. They were there drinking their tea and chatting there till it gets into lunchtime. And there was a few elders there. Most of them were very old and they were there since the beginning of Somaliland. So... Sarah was there to ask them about, you know, reconciliation, state building, and so on and so on. How did Somaliland come here? And why Somaliland? Why not Somalia? You know, all these questions. But when you meet someone with Somaliland, you don't always go into the uh, point. They always like to talk about, oh, where did you, you know, build that relationship? And this concept, this notion of taking time, is one of the many nuances in Somaliland. While Somalilanders believe that there should be no clock running on personal relationships, they have less patience for waffle when it comes to productivity and making decisions. Sometimes it feels like the NGOs work almost in reverse. In the NGO sector, you would have to have these timetable of the day, day one, day two, first minister will come in and talk and workshop presenter will keep talking and then you have a break and people don't tend to like that in Somaliland. They, they would want to, okay, let's sit down, say what you have to say and let's get on with it. <laughs> Where in the NGO sector, you would have to build up the person to understand the concept of what you're trying to say, but they really don't want to know that. They just want to Okay, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about FGM? Talk about FGM. Don't talk about the history of FGM. I don't really want to know about the history. FGM is a uh, form of female genitalia and circumcision. 
it's a very bad, very harmful practice done by Somali women generations after generations, which now is something that Somaliland people are moving from. And it's something that international community and a lot of famous people have advocated for to stop. So UNICEF will have this like a workshop in which they bring in traditional leaders, religious leaders, local community elders. They'll bring in women that actually do these circumcisions and so on. So they'll try to change their mind basically on not doing these things. And sadly, those never work. It's very hard to change someone's ideological belief. It's something that they've been doing for years. And for someone just to come in for two days workshop and tell you to stop, it won't take that. It would have been better to approach the young people at university level, where the young fresh minds, where they could understand the harmness in these you know, practices. But over the past 20 years, it seems like the NGO sector haven't learned anything from their experience of, of doing these workshops or development projects in Somalia. So people think that, oh, they're just spending money that's not worth spending. What they say is that what mostly happens is that they spend money on uh, sambusas and teas. <laughs> sambusas are a rectangle uh, pastry they have that during their breaks so everybody sees them oh they have the booths now so it must be the break so they feel that the international community have let them down massively and they think that most of these international organizations that are coming in throughout the 30 years that somaliland's been there are there for waste of time and most of the people in Somaliland, if you ask them today and you say, would you rather have them being kicked out or stay? I'm pretty sure with confidence, 99% of them will say to kick them out. I think everyone who's worked in international development knows this. There tends to be lots of meetings, which means that if you're an enterprising business person looking to cash in on an influx of international aid, you really can't beat investing in a hotel with copious meeting rooms and lots of coffee terrines for all those policy dialogues that take place. There are mainly two famous hotels, Mansour Hotel and the Ambassador Hotel. Ambassador Hotel is three kilometers from the airport, which attracts a lot of NGOs <laughs> just because of its proximity to the airport. In case something happens, they want to flee or something. I don't know. Evacuation plans and so on and so forth. But the other hotel, which is on the other side of the city, it's called Mansour Hotel. And this hotel now is where most of the population will go to because it's proximity to the inner city and the city centers of Hargeisa. And most of the politicians and everybody that's in Hargeisa or famous in Hargeisa, if you want to meet them, you just go to that hotel. You don't go to the office? No, no. That's where me and Sarah camped there. That hotel was our office. 
<laughs> so if we want to meet someone or someone that we couldn't find that wouldn't pick up the phone or something we just sit there in the lobby and they will walk in <laughs> before you go into the lobby you will see a whiteboard where it says hall one unicef hall two undp hall three uh, save the children hall five <laughs> all of them are ngos one or two are like a marriage gathering or so on. Hence, one of my friends walked in the NGO sector. He always used to see this board where it says Meher, which is a Somali word for marriage. And the other day he, he said to me, you know what? I know UNICEF and all of these NGOs, but which NGO is this Meher? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's another disconnect here one of pace and ways of working. Between Somaliland as an oral culture where dynamic things happen out of conversations and the bureaucratic, written, archly deliberative nature of the NGO funding process. If someone can come in and say, okay, you know what, I'll fund this project that you're talking about and they'll approve it now and then, the minister might know a engineer, he will call the engineer, literally call him himself on the phone and tell him to get down and start the project the following day. And the accountability will be based on that. And, uh, you know, the government-led approach is very bureaucratic, but also there is corruption as well. We cannot deny that. But on the other hand, you have... NGOs that you would have to write proposals and assessments and then workshops for the assessment and then go back and meet in Nairobi and get the ministers flying into Nairobi again and then talk it over over there and then come back and feed it back to the community and then by the time all of that is done people would have either died because of the drought that was happening or like it happens with WFP Every year, they bring in cash, they bring in crops from abroad to, you know, support the droughts. But the sad thing about it is they always arrive on the rainy season after the farmers have harvested their crops because there's so much influx of crops from abroad. In turn, for the locals, the prices go down. So what should these organizations be focusing on? What's needed, according to Ayan, are means to address wider, more complex issues that mirror the very problems donor nations themselves are grappling with. We have a lot of work to do, but I think at the end of the day, it's getting our infrastructure right so that there is economic development. I think also another thing we need to eye on is the environmental disaster, climate change that is happening. Because we, as a nation, are still very much depending on, on livestock. So with increasing drought, we need to address that too. So for me, it's the infrastructure is important, addressing environment is important, and engaging more with our continent. I think that's the future for Somalia. But is this possible to do without international recognition? Becoming recognized as a state in the modern world is hard. It is camel passing through the eye of a needle hard. I recently read and reviewed a thumper of a book called The Handbook of State Recognition, where I learned a really 
interesting correlation about what it is that is required to emerge as a state in the modern world. I thought the determining factor of whether a country became independent or not would be whether it is a democracy, whether it has strong institutions, whether it hits some good governance indicators. But it turns out that it actually depends upon three countries, whether the UK, France, or the United States want to support your application to be independent. None of these three countries have shown their hand for Somaliland yet, and that's what makes representing a country that doesn't exist such a challenge. Often people think about recognition as a sovereign state that's recognized so that you can decide for you, uh, about your future. But what you realize is it's about basic needs of people, meaning freedom of movement, right to education, right to health care, right to clean water. So all those issues is influenced whether you have recognition or not. So it's beyond diplomacy. It's almost humanitarian work, what you are doing. Somaliland exists in something of a twilight world. It's more state-like than many states that exist on the world map, but it has no flag flying at the United Nations. There's a real conundrum here. A large part of the reason why Somaliland is stable is because the political settlement on which its stability is founded occurred away from the international arc light. And at least some of the help that they are currently receiving seems less than useful, focusing on the formal meniscus and not the relational bonds that account for its success. Somaliland is happy not to be in the club, but it wants to be in the club. It's happy to do things itself, but it also wants international recognition. This is Memorandum of Understanding. I'm Gordon Peake. Producer is Julia Bergen. A music is from Luther Knut. You can find a link to Sarah's book in the show notes, the two reviews that I spoke about, as well as some of other writings about Somaliland. We go to air every fortnight, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback, and we appreciate it really much whenever you leave us a rating or a review. Follow us on Twitter at MOU underscore pod. See you in a few weeks. Thank you.